0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for May 2017, Volume 55, Number 5. My name is David Fisackley. I'm DTB's Deputy Editor.
1: And I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief.
0: In our editorial this month, we highlight some moves to save money on the primary care prescribing budget in England. This comes as a result of headlines suggesting that prescribers waste £400 million a year. What does this
1: $400 million cover? So this, as you say, this is um, the NHS clinical commissioners who've said in these difficult times we must look at every option we've got. They want to look at drugs with little or no clinical value expensive preparations where cheaper options are available and also look at cheaper over-the-counter preparations or things that we prescribe which perhaps can be bought by patients.
0: So the £400 million represents what percentage of primary care prescribing? So that's
1: 4% of the £9, mil- 9 billion pounds that's spent on drugs and primary care it might surprise people to realize that actually primary care prescribing only amounts for about 56 percent of the total 15 billion drug budget that the nhs spends but of course a lot of drugs used in secondary care are exceptionally expensive
0: So let's step back a moment. What restrictions are currently in place for primary care prescribers? What stops them prescribing anything?
1: Well, this is where we discuss the complexity that um, GPs and other prescribers face. So, of course, you have a situation where a drug is licensed. But then it may be blacklisted by the NHS, so it means that you uh, are unable to prescribe it on an NHS FP10. Um, You have situations where locally your area prescribing committee might um, have their own system of delisting drugs in some way or offering incentive schemes to avoid certain drugs. Um, you have guidelines, both national and local, which will steer you into certain uses of certain drugs. And uh, uh, overall, there, for, there are some legal requirements, there are some professional requirements, and there are some purely very often monetary requirements that the CCGs place on GPs.
0: So at the moment, facing any prescriber is a complex situation of, is it allowed? If it is allowed, am I allowed to do it locally? Should I do it locally? All sorts of things I have to consider. But in absolute terms, a GP can prescribe whatever he wants, provided it's not blacklisted or restricted in Schedule 18B or whatever it is of the drug tariff.
1: That's right. I mean, you know, the NHS Act of 1948 made it very clear that um, a GP must prescribe to a patient what a patient wants, and that GP must write it on an FP10 when doing that and can't charge for it. So those are the rules we're under. But, of course, there's been layer upon layer of local and and national guidelines that have tried to steer that. And I think, as we say in editorial, what we really need is some real clarity. What does the NHS pay for? What does it not pay for? Let's make this national. Let's not have postcode lotteries with one area doing something different from another. And the other thing I think we, we, we raise is the unexpected consequences of this, because I think sometimes GPs are well aware that The drug of no clinical value may be the only drug that that patient will take and which benefits that patient out of all the lists. And there's always a place, isn't there? We've talked about this in guidelines. Guidelines have got used to the idea that they're they're guidelines, not tram lines. You know, the NICE is now talking about the 80% of patients that guidelines fit. And I think, likewise, when it comes to prescribing, You know, 80% of uh, drug treatments should fit, but you know, there'll be 20% where perhaps things have to be a little bit off book, a little bit different to make sure we get the best for patients.
0: While we welcome anything that moves to a national coordinated approach with clear guidance and regulations that you either follow or you don't follow, there are problems that we could move from prescribing something that is cheap and cheerful, may not be terribly effective, but is working in some way for a patient, to something that is more expensive, more toxic, more harmful and could
1: cost us far more. Absolutely. So a classic example would be ibuprofen, let's say, it's available over-the-counter. The system might say patients should go and get it themselves. So when a patient comes to you as a GP, you have no control of their use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, you may not be aware, they may not be aware of all the issues around heart failure or heart disease. And then, of course, what can you do? Well, you can't prescribe the ibuprofen, so you'll be looking at more expensive, perhaps worse or or more uh, drugs with bigger side effects, you know, the codeine-based tramadols, and and that may have huge unexpected consequences.
0: So if this is going to be done, it needs to take in the whole picture, not just the cost. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. So our first main article this month looks at the use of testosterone therapy in menopausal women. that's why have we chosen this one
1: yes this was this comes on the back people with a long memory may remember that last year at the rcgp annual conference um a very well-renowned gynaecologist got up and talked about how women postmenopausal women who have issues with sex ought to be having testosterone therapy and uh, he quoted the nice guidelines from 2015 which sure enough do suggest that uh post women with sexual dysfunction should be offered testosterone and we thought well we looked at this when we looked at a drug that was marketed um, a while back in 2009 it was a transdermal patch called Intrinsa and we found very little evidence to support the use of testosterone in women in this situation so we thought we'd go back and have a look and and see what new evidence there was for this.
0: Since 2009 that product has been withdrawn for commercial reasons that there is no licensed product
1: yes rather bizarrely um just as nice suggests that it is an option we have nothing to treat women for this condition
0: so when we looked at the evidence in 2009 for the licensed product what did we find in terms of benefits
1: so what we found really was yes you can show in a low to, to moderate quality evidence some statistical benefit in satisfying sexual episodes, quality of sexual encounters. But these can be quite difficult to, in the meta-analysis, it's quite difficult to understand the clinical significance of that. So if you go back to that original randomized control trial that used in Trinza, published in 2010, this was um, 272 women randomized to either placebo patch or to the drug and in effect, you saw about 1 to 1.2 more episodes per month in the group taking the transdermal patch.
0: So a benefit, but small.
1: Yes, we're small. We're talking about two to three episodes to three to four episodes.
0: And so that was for the, the the product that was assessed in the, in the clinical trial at the time. What do we know about harms? So, as I think a lot
1: of us remember, hirsutism and acne the two classic adverse effects. Um, You see hirsutism in about 11% of women who take um, testosterone replacement therapy and about 7% of women develop acne. And that's not always reversible on stopping testosterone. Obviously, one of the other concerns is breast cancer risk. And there have been one study of four-year Open label study that looked at breast cancer and, and didn't apparently see any increased risk in those women taking testosterone replacement.
0: But because we've got no licensed product, we've got no systematic collection of information on long term harm. So we're still somewhat in the dark about.
1: That's right, and I think
0: it is difficult because
1: if you look at international guidelines, that also mention that the possible use of testosterone uh, treatment in these uh, women, but it does suggest that you know only in areas where there is a licensed product. And the difficulty we have is if you look at the other testosterone uh, products available, the lowest dose that you can find would still supply 10 milligrams of uh, testosterone in a dose compared to the 300 micrograms per day that was suggested in the trial um, using uh, Intrinsa.
0: So overall, there is some evidence highly selected populations, limited outcome data, but won't give away our full answer. You'll have to go and read the paper. Yeah, no licensed product. Okay, thank you very (laughs) much. And our final article this month is Dequilinium for treating bacterial vaginosis. So quick reminder of bacterial vaginosis and its treatment. Yeah, so this is a common cause
1: for vaginal discharge in women it's um, thought to be caused by an overgrowth of uh, bacteria overcoming the lactobacilli that are, that are sort of the friendly bacteria, if you like. And, uh, uh, and we're talking about this new drug, dequilinium, an antiseptic um, for topical use in this situation.
0: So dequilinium we know as the cause an ingredient of Dequidin lozenges. Uh,
1: absolutely. So, of course, this has been around for, for yonks and Dequidin lozenges have been around for many years for sore throats. So it's an antiseptic. What was the comparison? So we've got one uh, phase three trial, 321 women with bacterial vaginosis, and they compared Dequilinium 10 milligram tablets, inserted one at night, vaginally for six days versus clindamycin 2% for seven days. That was the sort of one study we have. And outcome? So they did a non-inferiority study with a 15% margin And at seven days after treatment, 81% of patients who had been given dequilinium were cured versus 78% of those who had been given clindamycin. And so it was considered non-inferior with a p-value of 0.0004.
0: So some evidence around short-term benefits obviously it has a high recurrence rate anyway do we know much about so that that's right so recurrence is common in
1: in bacterial vaginosis uh quotes of between 50 and 70 percent recurrence rate they only did one follow-up at 25 days and there'd been a 14 percent recurrence in the dequilinium group and a nine percent uh recurrence rate in the clindamycin that was non-statistically significant difference between the two
0: Okay, any harms or concerns we should be worried about?
1: Doesn't seem to be. There obviously, um, you can get sensation burning and such, but uh, there's no um, very little absorption from the vagina, so no real concerns regarding
0: absorption or any systemic effects. So at the moment, stepwise treatment, normally oral antibiotics, metronidazole first line. So where, where where would this sit?
1: So currently, the, the thought is metronidazole, 400 milligrams twice a day for seven days is sort of first line. And then in the past, clindamycin has been sort of second line. And Scotland and Wales have both looked at uh, dequilinium and suggested it, it should be uh, second line in patients who can't tolerate metronidazole or have had recurrence um, following that treatment.
0: So reasonably encouraging data and seems to have a place where it could be a, a reasonable option.
1: Yes, I mean, it's an interesting, isn't it, because it's an antiseptic, and therefore it, it just raises this possibility of us being able to not use so much antibiotic. And in these days of antibiotic stewardship, that may be a great thing. One of the things that um, is sort of not yet really clear is the issue around resistance developing to antiseptics. The literature we saw suggests that resistance is unlikely. Um, But obviously, that is a question mark over any treatment we
0: use on bacteria or viruses. Okay, thank you very much. To read this and any of our articles, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions on DTB content, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much.